0: Welcome back to another episode of the Royals Farm Report Podcast. My name is Joel Penfield. As always, I'm joined by Alex Duval. How's it going, man?
1: Joel, I'm doing fantastic
0: this afternoon. There is
1: snow on the ground. Winter is in the air. Santa Claus is coming to town. This is my favorite time of year. I love the Christmas atmosphere. Everybody gets happier. Seems like everybody's in a better mood around the holidays. So I'm in my prime right around this time of year, even though we don't have baseball. so Couldn't be happier to be here. I'm glad you're back.
0: Man, in Oklahoma, it's starting to get colder. So we're starting to get into that, you know, the winter season and all that, but it's just cold and we don't get snow. We get ice here. So it's just a really like winter just sucks here. If it just snows, then I'd be, I'd be perfectly, perfectly content. But Christmas time is a great time of year. And I'm, you know, we're getting that much closer to baseball season rolling back around. Alex and I today are joined by Corey Nido. You've probably seen him on Twitter, but he is the director of broadcasting and video for the Wilmington Blue Rocks, high A team for the Kansas City Royals, Carolina League champions this year. He also does some work for Delaware football and some radio up in the upper Northeast there. Corey, thank you for joining us today.
2: Hey, no problem, guys. Thanks for having me aboard.
0: So I know you probably, you know, baseball season has been over for a little bit. You've kind of been in football mode this, you know, for the last few months, haven't you?
2: yeah football winded down a couple of weeks ago and uh, gearing up to fill in for uh, some men and women's uh University of Delaware basketball games uh over the winter so uh been lucky to kind of uh, hop in for UD uh, They love their blue hens here in the state of Delaware, so uh to be able to kind of get some work in uh, when my uh, two fellow uh, broadcast partners can't make the games, uh, it's definitely a treat. How'd the season go this year for uh, for football? Uh, football, I think, uh, went a little bit, uh, on the worse side than that, what they were hoping for. Um, they struggled a little bit, uh, young quarterback, young team, uh, a year ago, they had a phenomenal defense, one of the best in the FCS, but they lost, uh, their safety, Nasir Adderley, who was a second round pick to the LA chargers. Uh, Troy reader, who was a hometown hero here in Delaware, uh, is a starting linebacker for the Rams. Um, so they lost a lot of talent, um, trying to replace that with young athletic, talented Student athletes, and I, I think this year was a good learning year for them. Although I'm sure Coach Rocco probably was hoping to make another playoff berth, but unfortunately that just wasn't the case this year. And hopefully they're able to learn from it and be much more improved uh, next season.
1: Hey, so Corey, what, speaking of basketball, so I got a funny story about basketball announcing. So when I graduated from uh, the University of Central Missouri here in Warrensburg, Missouri, um, we then had two lines at graduation, and 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 one line. I think it was like the dean of one of the colleges. It was like reading names. You'd walk across the stage, and he'd be like, Corey Nido, uh, cum laude. And, you know, crowd would applause or not applaud or whatever. But in my line, line that was line number two, it was the color analyst for the men's basketball team. Mm-hmm. And so everybody that would walk across the stage in my line, it was a totally different vibe. When we walked across the stage, it was more like, Joel Penfield, cum laude. <laughs> and then the crowd would naturally go nuts because this guy's this guy's enthusiasm. So I have one request for you and that's if you do basketball games and if they, for some reason ask you to participate in graduation, you've got to get the crowd and the students fired up because that was like a one of a kind experience. And really the only experience I have with like basketball analysts in any way. So that's, that's my one memory, but it was um, interesting to say the least. That's
2: pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, Hey, wait a, it's a good way to get the crowd amped up, you know, an exciting day on graduation, but uh, add a little more enthusiasm. I think that you never can go wrong there.
0: All right, so so let's get into the meat of the conversation here. So obviously you spent the whole season as the play-by-play for the Wilmington Blue Rocks this year's second season this uh, past year, correct?
2: Uh, So this was my third season overall first as the lead voice. Uh, I took over for Matt Janice, who um, Herman and his wife had a baby this past season, so uh, the travel schedule was just a little too tough um, for the addition of their family, so he stepped back in the media relations role. And uh, I was lucky enough to be promoted this past season.
0: Gotcha. Well, obviously, this it was a magical run for the Blue Rocks this year, winning the Carolina League. So many of the you know the top prospects in the Royal system came through. But just talk us through what it was like from you know game one in April all the way up until the final out of the championship game. Just you know some good stories, or just you know what what was it like to follow this team this year? I mean, it was.
2: Amazing. Um, like I said, my first year traveling with the team, so really getting used to the bus life and and understanding the grind that these guys go through on a day to day basis in the course of a 140 game season. But um, opening day, obviously, a lot of buzz. Um, the the roster came out two days before, and you know we we have some Royals fans in Wilmington, but we just have great Blue Rocks fans. We say that we have some of the best fans in all Minor League Baseball, and it's true. They're very passionate. Uh, they come out in the frigid weather. We have a a blue Saturday deal where we have a temperature deal for our opening day tickets and then any other tickets. So if it's 37 degrees out here in Wilmington, Delaware at 9 a.m. on a particular day, fans are getting tickets for $0.37. Cents. And they come out by the hundreds. And that just kind of shows the loyalty that they have for this team. We've been here for 27 seasons now. But the the team that was constructed here at Wilmington, we we had a good idea that we were going to get a lot of the top prospects, and and everybody was excited for it. And then you get Daniel Lynch to start things off on opening night here at home, and they played the Salem Red Sox, and it, it was a tough game. They fell early, and they, they lost the first two games and then bounced back to even up their first series of the season. And then you could just kind of see as each week progressed the way that these young players were starting to come together. Obviously, a lot of them were in low a Lexington, and they won the Sally League Championship. Uh, two years ago now and, and you just could kind of see the maturity of them and Scott Dorman. Uh Thorman is the fourth different manager that I've had this year. Or did I do that correctly? Uh but, but but yeah, fourth different manager. And um he's just a players manager, uh guys. I mean he just commanded the respect of the clubhouse. Um everybody around him knew he meant business, but the players really resonated. you know, they really resonated with him in, in terms of just respecting him and understanding what he wanted out of them and april comes by and you're like okay like this team's kind of finding out its identity the carolina league's a tough league to hit in overall and obviously here at frawley stadium it's perhaps the most pitcher friendly ballpark in all of minor league baseball so the offensive numbers are always down in april it's still cold sub the 20 30 degree weather you know for the most part of april may you start seeing some things turn around Then june july and august that's when the offense really would click normally. But for this season, it just didn't happen for whatever the case may be. If it was the young guys pressing like MJ Melendez or Nick Prado or or just the overall competition the Carolina League, the pitching was fantastic from top to bottom. But by the All-Star break, you knew this team was special. They were able to clinch the first half Northern Division title the first time they were making the playoffs since 2015. You saw the, the performances of Brady Singer, Jackson Coward, Daniel Lynch, Nick Prado was superb at first base. I'm actually surprised he didn't win the um, baseball America uh, first baseman of the year. Um, Defensively, at least I thought he was the best first baseman on the defensive side here in the league. And then MJ Melendez with his rocket arm behind home. Kyle Isbell was on a tear in April. Uh, I thought if he kept things going, he would have been in double a by May. If he didn't suffer that ham eight bone injury and the hamstring, obviously which put him on the IL initially, but this team was special. They won a lot of closed games. It wasn't pretty, but the storyline of the season was the pitching. I mean, Steve Luber came down from AA and you talk to some people who recognize Steve from years past here in Wilmington, and they're saying, oh, well, why did he get demoted? It wasn't a demotion at all. The Royals love what Steve Luber does with young pitching, and he just really got all these youngsters ready to go and to get to a certain point where you saw Brady and Jackson get called up to double-A. Daniel Tillow had a resurgence in the second half. He finished strong in Northwest Arkansas. Tyler Zuber, um, the list goes on and on from the pitching standpoint that this team was going to win on pitching and timely hitting, and that's what they did. I mean, they won over 80 games. Half of those wins were by one run. And in the championship series, they held a potent Fayetteville offense scoreless over the final 20 innings to punctuate that magical season, as you mentioned earlier. So um, it was just a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on about different games, different moments. Um, th- there are some that stick out for me. I think the biggest one, perhaps uh, late April, we were in Frederick. Rocks were getting no hit into the ninth inning. They were down 4 nothing. They scored five runs on one hit and stunned the Keys 5-4. The only hit was a go-ahead ground rule double by Christian Perez. And that kind of really showed me that this team, no matter how much they're down, they're going to find ways to scratch and claw and win games. And that's what they did. They were down 0-2 in the first round of the playoffs. Didn't look good. Had the final three games at home against Salem. Pitching carried. Timely hitting was clutch. And the rest is history. They became Mills Cup championship winning team for the first time in two decades.
0: So. We, you know, we knew about the pitching, uh, you know, all season long. I don't we know if we need to dive further into that, but I do want to dive into the the offensive struggles, namely of guys like MJ Melendez, Nick Prado, who had extremely high expectations coming into the season. We had MJ Melendez as our number one prospect coming into the season. Obviously, that fell off a little bit uh, this season because he he just struggled behind the plate. Sully Matias is another guy as well. But I'm curious in your interactions with them at the ballpark, you know, every day for six months, did it – how did they handle that adversity? You know, did they – you know, were they down? Were they, you know, mentally just struggling and just pressing? Or did they really just – was it just kind of bad luck and they just, you know, were able to battle through it? So I – I think – uh, Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you're good. I was just going to try and reiterate, but, you know, you're good.
2: Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, Um. I mean, I think it was a combination of everything – Um. I mean, these these guys were 20 years old when they came into high A. The average age in the league at high A is 22 years old. So they're playing, you know, essentially two years quicker than where they're supposed to be. And that's because they're those high, you know, talented prospects that you guys had them ranked. A lot of different publications had them ranked very high. And for good reason. Uh, um, For Nick Prado, uh, I think it was a little bit of pressing, a lot of bad luck. Uh, I mean, there's times where he would scorch the ball two or three times a night and hit a line drive right to the second baseman who shifted in the shallow right field. Um, you know, and, and he was able to kind of turn things around in the second half. He he was able to draw counts more. Um, it probably doesn't display in his stats um, that, that progression, but I noticed on a night-to-night basis that, hey, Nick's not swinging or not taking a, a first-pitch fastball and then swinging at a curveball low and away, and then now he's down 0-2. You know, he's working counts. He's getting deep in counts. He's spoiling tough pitches off. And I talked to Nick, and he said that it was a big jump. He said, in low A, you had pitchers that had one pitch. You know, if it was a fastball at 98, you knew it was coming. You could time it up. The breaking pitches weren't there. But here at the advanced A level, there's guys that have that second and third pitch, and they can throw it at any point in the count. Nick saw countless 2-0 breaking balls, you know, 3-1 backdoor curveballs, and he sits on it because he's looking fastball and you know you're looking for something to drive and now you got a full count and now the pitcher kind of has the momentum back in the at-bat so to speak so I thought Nick did a great job um what I was most impressed with Nick he didn't let his offensive struggles carry over on the defensive side he saved so many throwing errors for the Blue Rocks infield this year it, it was remarkable uh, every night he would have a, a, a crazy scoop a split I mean, anything that you can think a first baseman can do defensively, Nick can do it. And I can see why the Royals were high on him. Um, I'm sure if you spoke with Nick, he would say he was frustrated with his offensive output. But he he did decent in the playoffs. He was able to continue to play a solid first base. And I think that was key as well. For MJ, uh, same thing. When MJ got a hold of a ball, I mean, it left the yard. There's no doubt about it. Uh, He crushed a couple of home runs in the playoffs. Um, He was the MVP of the Mills Cup Championship Series. So not to be cliche, but he saved his best for last. And he really came up big for the Blue Rocks offensively against a very talented Fayetteville pitching staff where almost every guy that they threw, like the Astros love, throw 95 and above. I mean, there wasn't a guy that threw below 94 in that entire series that the Blue Rocks saw. So um, MJ had a great final series to end the year. And again, defensively his arm was just amazing. I mean, he was amongst the league leaders and caught stealing percentage. I mean, there's times where teams would run once, he would throw out a runner by 10, 15 feet, and you didn't even see a runner attempt to steal a bag again. And that also doesn't show on stat lines and box scores, but that really helps these young pitchers settle in. They don't have to necessarily worry about the running game because MJ neutralized it. And I think, you know, if they end up in Wilmington next season, uh, obviously I don't know what Dayton Moore and J.J. Piccolo and company have in store for those two. But I would expect if they are in Wilmington that they would bounce back nicely and perhaps be in double A by the second half of the season. (laughs)
1: You know, Corey, you talk about Nick and MJ and, and I think is, you know, I don't want to say, you know, the word, use the word amateur too lightly. Like Joel and I aren't, you know, at least somewhat experienced in what we do, but we are amateur evaluators. And, you know, even as being amateur evaluators, when you evaluate someone like MJ and like Nick, you know, I, I have talked with both of them. Um, MJ more extensively than Nick and, and I do have a you know a, a sim- somewhat of a relationship with members of the Royals front office and from everything that I've you know gathered talking to MJ and Nick everything I've gathered from talking to the front office you know everything I've gathered from watching them play it is such like a weird thing to see where you know they they both dominate the defensive part of the game unlike many 1920 year olds I've ever seen in terms of like their headiness and and their self-awareness and their maturity for the
2: game,
1: it's unlike really anything that I've seen from a 19, 20 year old. And and so that aspect of the game, the maturity, the, the baseball IQ, the defense and their base running too, by the way, is, you know, like 60, 70 grade stuff to where, you know, these guys are close to being some of the best prospects in baseball. But obviously we know, you know nothing matters if you don't hit, and that's what. And that's where I kind of get, you know, confused with, or you know, um, I, I don't know how to phrase it. But what's weird is the swings don't look broken to me. That's the the approaches seem somewhat fine. It just never came together. And so I think you know, as a team, like if you have a, a leader or, or someone you know who's you know thought of be the best player on the team, when they struggle, it's you know, everybody steps up. Everybody picks them up because they know they're going to come out of it. And it seemed like the Blue Rocks were able to do that all year, where they knew that two of their dudes, MJ and Nick, those were you know two of their leaders on the team, and like the whole team played up to a level that maybe we didn't expect them to be able to play up to, because they knew their leaders weren't hitting the way they should. And it happened, and it seemed like it went all year. Can, can you speak to how? the rest of the team was able to kind of pick up the pieces that MJ and Nick weren't picking up on offense. And I know the offense as a whole was still, you know, kind of historically slow for most of the season, but it just seemed like every night that somebody did something that maybe you didn't expect them to, to to continue to piece together wins.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, to talk about the defensive side real quick, uh, um, I know you were talking about that earlier, but Nick and MJ have this pickoff move to first base that is a thing of beauty. I'm not sure if you guys have seen me tweet about it. Unfortunately, we don't know when it's coming, so we don't have video. But, man, they have a nonverbal, non-signal communication between the two where MJ just rockets the ball down to first base and Prado's behind the runner. and the pro- And the runner is absolutely stunned that Nick is behind him. And I lost count after about 15 times that they've backdoored a runner at first. And, and that just speaks to the maturity and the ability that these two young men have. But to go to your point of of these other players picking it up, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, Kyle Isbell was on a tear in April. Uh, he came back, obviously, a little bit slow to get back into the groove. But he was instrumental in the, the stretch down in the postseason. He had a couple of big hits. And then a lot of other guys that aren't your prospects. Kyle Kasser, to me, really stood out. Um, you know, he's just kind of a grinder, um, you know, he, he played second, he played third base. He even played some left field for the blue rocks. He had a three hit game in the playoffs. Uh, he was able to just spark things. He's a 30th round pick out of Oregon back in 2018. So this is a guy, you know, that just the Royals are giving him a chance and I don't think he expected to be a huge part of the blue rocks picture, but he played in 62 games and hit three Oh three. Uh, you know, he's on base percentage north of 360, OPS 706. And he came up in big moments to just kind of fuel this offense. He would turn the lineup over. Tyler Hill, Wilmington, Delaware native. He got signed by the Royals after starting the year in the Yankees farm system. Tyler was rejuvenated. And he was really that big thumper that we were hoping MJ and Nick would be. And I think fans were hoping that they were. And Tyler Hill comes in and hits North of 400 in his short time with Wilmington. And he just kind of really jolted this offense in the second half once he joined the team down in Myrtle Beach. His first at-bat, Tyler hit a home run as a Blue Rock. And then, of course, he hit the game-winning hit in Game 4 of the NDCS against Salem to force that pivotal Game 5. And Blue Rocks went on to win and stunned Salem after being down 0-2. And, again, the rest is history. But you have guys like that. Brewer Hicklin was consistent. Um, I know a lot of fans are excited about Brewer. He can really do everything. Uh, he's got speed. He's got power. And, of course, he, he used to play football at UAB before the program was shut down. Um, He just kind of brought that energy every single day where he didn't care about his body. Uh, he'd give up his body and run into a wall and then lead off the inning with a double and then score on a single because he was that quick. And all of a sudden, the Blue Rocks have a one-run lead. So a lot of these guys really stepped up uh, for Nick and MJ. And you could kind of see it was like that next man mentality. It didn't matter who it was. It's just a matter of when it was happening. Dennis Carrasco had some pop in the lineup. Um, Christian Perez, who's more known for his glove, had a solid year offensively. Uh, Ricky Arsena was battling some injuries at second base. He came back. He was decent. Colby Schultz, another um, kind of lower-end prospect, not to say that he's not A good player at all but he was undrafted signed by the royals but kind of these role players that you necessarily don't expect to contribute as much they did and i think that's what made this blue rocks team and season so special it wasn't the bonafide prospects carrying the team it was on the pitching side but on the offensive side it was just an all hands on deck mentality and they just were able to scrape up enough runs to to win games when they needed to
1: For sure. And and, and you mentioned Brewer Hicklin and and some of the other, you know, bigger names that, you know, helped out but weren't, you know, like expected to be. And and that's one thing that I think the Royals do a great job of is producing. And and one thing that I've argued for a long time is the Royals do a good job of of getting players in their system to their floor. So whatever that, you know, creating a higher floor for them. What I mean by that is they maybe move up levels and, and produce, you know, like, like you said, Kyle Kasser and Colby and Schultz will never be the MVP of the league they play in. But if they're ceiling or if, you know, whatever is double a, the Royals are going to make sure that they do everything necessary to get there.
2: And then from, from then
1: on, it's everything that has to do with the player. It, it, you know, what, what is the player's natural ability versus, you know, what is their potential if they get to this amount of work and, and whatever. But, the Royals do a good job of making sure that guys like Kyle Kasser and Colby Schultz are performing well enough so that teams like Wilmington can go in their championship. And I think that's, I think it speaks to the organization as a whole, that there are always guys like this on the team, ready to fill in and ready to help the team win a championship. I feel like Christian Perez was a guy that um, didn't get a ton of, you know, acclaim last year in Lexington in 2018 in Lexington, but he, he was a, a huge piece of that Lexington Legends South Atlantic League championship. And so, um, again, just to reiterate, I think the Royals do a great job of making sure they have role players like that. Um, not only in the minor leagues, but but we see that in the major leagues time and time again as well. Uh, you know, Christian Colon with the big single, the World Series, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. even play for the entire World Series. But, my gosh, when the team needs him, he's there. He's filling in. He's helping teams, you know, helping the team ultimately win a World Series.
2: No, I, I completely agree. You mentioned Perez. Like I said, Dencher Carrasco, Blake Perkins uh, was really good for the Blue Rocks. He was instrumental as a leadoff man. I know the Royals are high on Blake. They acquired him in that trade with Washington a couple of years ago. But, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's not like football or basketball where one position player can take over a game. And that's why I love about baseball. Yes, a starting pitcher can dominate, but it takes one bad pitch to to end a good start. You know, we see that at any level in the big leagues. And for this Blue Rocks team, you know, it just was who's up next. You know, all right, Kyle Isbell goes down after tearing the cover off the ball in April. Who's going to be the center fielder? All right, well, Blake Perkins is here. We had Michael Gigliotti, who tore the cover off the ball in low a in Lexington to earn the promotion. So I think these guys are understanding the importance of, of not only playing for themselves, but also as a team, because at the end of the year, the goal is to win a championship. I spoke with Kyle Isbell and I asked him preseason. I said, Hey, Kyle, you know, you won a championship in Loway, Lexington. You were able to kind of join that team in the middle of the run. What's your goal this year in Wilmington? He said, Win another championship. Talk to Nick Prado, win another championship. MJ Melendez, the same trickled all the way down. And, and when you have these players that have that winning caliber and, and that expectation, I mean, you're looking at a core group right now that have won back to back championships in low a and high a and and you could presumably hope that they're going to be in double a at some point next year all together again and and everything clicks you know maybe the pitchers won't be but the offensive unit will be and and i think the royals as you mentioned develop these players that are both fantastic men on and off the field and, and they're really starting to flip this farm system around and they have some really talented players at the lower levels that a lot of fans are now going to start seeing at double-A AA and triple-A.
0: Corey, this has been awesome so far, and we've still got a lot to talk about here. But before we get into the back half of this conversation, we'll have a word from a sponsor. All right, Corey. So one of the highlights of the entire season uh, in the Royals organization as a whole was the no-hitter that Jonathan Bolin threw this season. This is going to be a two-part question here. One, do you believe in the announcer jinx? And two, what was it like to call a no-hitter like that? So uh,
2: the first answer, I, I do somewhat believe in it, which is weird because I do and I don't. I don't think the broadcaster has any control over the outcome of the game. But in my head, I just I was worried with social media and everything. Somebody listening in, I say, hey, he's got a no-hitter going, and I jinxed it. So I basically just kind of recapped the game, saying he had a no-hitter but not saying – those words exactly i said hey jonathan bullen his only base runner was an error or you know he reached on a a throwing error back in the first inning or hey jonathan bullen hasn't allowed a base runner since then and i didn't necessarily say he had a no hitter and so i guess maybe it's hypocritical so yes i sort of believe in it but at the end of the day i i know that i had no control over the fate of jonathan's performance um to call it it was it was fantastic um You know, not to make it about me, but I was actually down in Florida um, for my grandfather's funeral. So I missed the first two or three games of that series. And Matt Janice filled in and, as always, did a fantastic job. And I come back and I just I just wanted to call a baseball game. I just kind of wanted to get back to the reality. And man, what what a way to kind of get back into reality. Uh, You know, Jonathan looked great. His fastballs had great command. He throws a heavy heater, very, very tough to elevate. And you can see he was struggling with his his slider. He he didn't really have it. And when I spoke with him after the game, he said he didn't really get a good feel for it until the seventh inning. But as as you're keeping score in your book and you're telling the story about the game, you're realizing wow, like he's nine outs away, he's six outs away. And then when that ninth inning came up, man, my my heart was just pounding out of my chest. I mean, I I thought my heart was literally touching the rubber that Jonathan was standing on. I mean, it was just kind of a nerve wracking, uh, situation. I have never called the no hitter before. Um, and I just wanted to paint the best picture possible for our listeners. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to get too fancy. I just kind of wanted to see, call what I saw. And then when he was able to strike out that last batter, um, yeah, it was, it was a party, you know, they love Jonathan. They call him big bull uh, for good reason, six, 260 pounds. He could line up as a tight end across from a uh, Travis Kelsey. And, uh, you know, he just fantastic pitcher, great young man. Um, and it was a lot of fun, you know, first time in almost two decades for a nine inning, no hitter. Um, and, and Jonathan certainly deserved it. He put in a lot of work all season and, uh, just to kind of be a small part of franchise history call or a no hitter. I mean, it was, it was a lot of fun for sure.
0: So then you move to the call and I'm gonna move to the call, you know, the final out of the mills cup championship you know, what's it like to be in that moment? Because, you know, it's so tough because you want to talk about the moment, you know, as an announcer and paint that picture, how hard is it to, you know, have that, but then also just let the moment be the moment for those guys and not want to want, you know, your voice to be the only thing that they hear when you talk about it. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as an announcer, you, you hear about all these broadcasters either making the call the right way or not. And, you know, if you don't do it the right way, it's, you know, unfortunately talked about more than when you make a great call. And again, I I never called the championship caliber, um, game, you know, like the teams I've worked for never made the playoffs prior to this year. Um, so everything was kind of new to me. Uh, you know, I I may have gotten a little bit of practice when they clinched the Northern division on a walk-off single by Blake Perkins earlier in the year, the no hitter, obviously. And then that roller coaster ride of a Northern division series against Salem. But, um, for that championship game, you know, in that ninth inning, uh, they got that extra run on Prado's double, and I said, all right, you know, Ratliff's coming in, and he's been here before. And so I just kind of said to myself, hey, you know, take a deep breath, and again, just call what you see, but keep it simple. Um, You know, the fans don't want stats or stories, obviously. At that point, you just you got to call the three outs the way they unfold. And, you know, the only thing I wanted to, to punctuate, and I, I didn't plan the call, and I've had people ask me, you know, Did I, I draw up the call? The only thing I want to punctuate was that it was the first time in 20 years that the Blue Rocks have won a championship, which is kind of hard to believe because before, a couple of years ago, this was only an eight-team league. The last time they won it, they split it with Myrtle Beach in 99. So of an eight-team league for more than a decade almost, you know, they, they weren't that team to win it. So I just kind of wanted to emphasize the importance of how long of a drought Wilmington has had um, without a Mills Cup championship. Um, you know, whether I said first time in 20 years, the first time in two decades, whatever came out, it came out. And then after that, um, you know, as much as I love for it to be a home game and get our crowd there, um, we had a great showing of blue rocks fans. So when that final double play was made, uh, I kind of just stepped back and let the crowd, Mike, pick up all the celebration from our guys on the field and the the great fans of Wilmington that made the trip down to Fayetteville. And, you know, I, I let it go for a good 20, 25 seconds on the radio and, Um, you know, just kind of recapped everything that happened, and you know, said that that was a magical season, and and I think that's the best way to describe it. It it was magical. It had everything working for the Blue Rocks. You mentioned the no hitter, all the times these guys found ways to find um a chance to win a game, and you know, it, it culminated in that that final out of the championship, and that's what those guys were working so hard for. And like you said, it was their moment. It's not my moment. I'm just lucky to be a small part of it, and uh had a great listener uh f- listenership uh with the Blue Rocks um had a lot of fans chime in and and compliment me which means a lot to me but again at the end of the day it was it was the Blue Rocks their players their coaching staff their moment and uh just try to find that balance and I hope I did. Yeah, I I think
1: you know everybody'll agree before you know I think everybody'll agree that you did a great job and and by the time that Royals fans are able to listen to this uh, and Blue Rocks fans that aren't Royals fans, by the time you're able to listen to this, I will go and I will find those calls on Twitter somewhere, and I'll have them retweeted or posted somewhere so that fans can go back and watch and listen to those if you haven't seen them already. But Corey, I, I've I've got to ask now that we've heard your side of those stories, what was your favorite call? What was the and now that you look back on it, what is your favorite call that you made? That the no hitter was the
2: clinching of the playoffs was it the championship victory uh i think it was the championship victory um you know like i said these guys work so hard and and to to grind it out with them um from a distance you know these guys are on the buses late uh wilmington's the northernmost team in the league so most of our travel after potomac and frederick they're at least five to six hour bus rides so these guys play a game here in wilmington pack up the bus by 11 30 midnight and They're hauling on 95 South uh, to their next destination. And, you know, there was a time we had a bus break down um, on the way to Kinston, North Carolina. Ended up basically sleeping the night in a um, rest stop. Um, And and these guys just never really complained. They showed up to work. And, again, a big credit goes to Scott Thorman. Uh, He is a typical and true definition of a player's manager. and, And I think he really... Uh, deserves a lot of credit for how he was able to manage this team with all the top prospects, all the hype, and and to keep these guys believing in one another. But I, I think the, the championship call was my favorite just because it hadn't happened in 20 years. Um, God, I mean, I'm 27, so I was seven years old the last time that the Blue Rocks won a championship. So, again, to just kind of see everything unfold from opening day to clinching the division to, to – winning the way they did in that first round of the playoffs to to just kind of have the icing on the cake. I think that was my favorite. part. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, one more one question I wanted to ask you. Um a little bit,
1: you know, different subject here is and I'll I'll kind of explain why in a second, but how what percentage of Blue Rocks fans do you think are also
2: Royals fans? Hm, that's a tough question. Um I don't know if I'd be able to put a number on it. Um I mean, I, I think there are some Royals fans, maybe that aren't necessarily Blue Rocks fans, but they do tune in to our radio broadcasts, or they're in tune with what we're doing on social media. Um, but I can say, regardless of if they're Royals fans or not, they love their players here in Wilmington. So if we're affiliated with the Royals, the Orioles, whoever, um, you know, they're going to love their Blue Rocks. But I would say there's a there's a small amount of true Royals fans in the area, and that may just be because the Royals and the Blue Rocks have been an affiliate for over 25 years. You know, they, they've been able to have a consistency here with the Blue Rocks and the Wilmington area. Uh, you know, we have Dayton Moore come in. We have J.J. Piccolo come in and help revamp our clubhouse. I mean, he was in here with Power Tools helping our clubhouse manager and our operations manager uh, redo the clubhouse. So that kind of just really speaks to the the relationship that we have with kansas city so um you know if if they're not fans of the royals because they're from kansas city or they grew up liking the royals i think they are a fan of the royals by association because of the great partnership that we've had as an affiliate of kansas city gotcha so the so the reason
1: i ask and and from what i what i'm gathering is there's there's probably fans of the blue rocks that are not royals fans And, and the reason i You know, wanted to uh, uh, can you can you speak a little bit to the importance of having minor league baseball in Delaware? Uh, You know, there's a big push right now from MLB that you know they're going to cut some minor league franchises. You know, they're they're threatening to walk away from minor league baseball as a whole. And there's a whole rabbit hole we could go down if we wanted to, but I want to I want to try to stay away from a four hour long conversation about minor (laughs) league baseball. But can you can you speak to me about you know? how, so really quick, how far are you in in Wilmington from a big league ball club?
2: Uh, so we're only uh, less than thirty five minutes from Philadelphia. Um, oh wow. So we got we got the Phillies on the north side and the Orioles on the south side. So we're sandwiched between two teams. And back to your last question, that's kind of why I couldn't really give you a number of Royals fans because we are somewhat competing with the Phillies and the Orioles for for a fan base so to speak on a major league scale but yeah i mean there is major league baseball um relatively close to us but again what i love about minor league baseball and don't get me wrong like i love major league baseball grew up loving the game there's not many opportunities to get this close to future stars i mean we've had mike Musakis, eric Hosmer, salvador perez uh the late Jordano ventura nicky lopez and Whit merrifield you know that are the new wave of royals they were here in Wilmington. So a lot of fans, you know, they may not be fans of the Royals or or whoever the team is that, that's affiliated with their local league team, but they, became, they become fans of the players. And then when they make it to the big leagues, they now root for the Royals. I can't tell you how big of a fan favorite Nicky Lopez was here in 2017. I mean, the kid was phenomenal. Jamie Quirk said he was a big league shortstop defensively when he was here. And, you know, he, he's able to make up to the big leagues and you hear host families going out to Baltimore to, to root on for the players that they welcomed into their home. So, I mean, there are, there is a major league team very close to us in the Phillies, but I think it's very, very important for the state of Delaware because us and the Delaware blue coach, which is is the, the G league affiliate of the Philadelphia 76ers. We're the only two professional sport teams in the state of Delaware. It's the blue rocks, the, the blue coats, and then obviously the blue hens, which is is above all it, it seems at times because they just love their blue hens. And now you, you obviously have smaller schools at the collegiate level, but those are the three main sport teams here in Delaware. And you know, I again, I think we have some of the best and most loyal fans in, in all of minor league baseball for that reason. They understand the the closeness that Delaware appreciates. And, you know, yeah, we can lose some fans to a Phillies game on a particular night or an Orioles game. But at the end of the day, a lot of our fans love coming to Blue Rocks games because of what we offer both on and off the field. Gotcha. Well, that's
1: what I get for not doing my homework. For for whatever reason, I thought you guys were a little bit further um, from from a big league ball club than that. But I, I think you did a good job of answering the question I really wanted answered was, you know, why is minor league baseball so important to different groups of people in different places? You know, I think I saw a tweet earlier today. It was like um, this, this guy was saying that he's 10 hours from any big league ball club, but he's got a minor league team next door. And that's the only chance his son and daughter will ever have to watch professional baseball on a regular basis because it's just too far to travel for any regular, you know, major league baseball game. I think it's important for people to realize, you know, how important, you know, minor league baseball teams are to their community. Um, I think a lot of Royals fans that live around Kansas City you know, think about these teams as, um, you know, feeding into the Royal system and, and, and that's all they are. And, and to an extent, that's kind of what they are, but they mean, they, they mean so much to the communities that they're in. And I just hope that, you know, if anybody ever has an opportunity to vouch for minor league baseball to anyone who matters, um, I encourage you to do so because minor league baseball is a, is a piece of, you know baseball culture that you know needs not go away and, and i hope is somehow protected from from anyone who matters so hopefully that's something that gets resolved um but but i appreciate cory you you know kind of giving your you know the take of someone who's in delaware and what minor league baseball you know means to uh that that community specifically uh in wilmington
2: yeah no problem and i mean like you said 10 hours away i mean you you look at some of these people that live in say montana or idaho i mean heck even north carolina north carolina has tons and tons of minor league teams but there's no big league team in north carolina like if i'm doing a quick scan in my head there's you know I, i can't think of anybody that's a big league team in north carolina but there's a ton of minor league teams but you're right you know these these kids you know it's not easy to go to a phillies game or a yankees game i grew up a Yankees fan, and I was born in North Jersey. I grew up in Scranton, PA. I'm two and a half hours away from Philly or New York City. But now, to, to, you know, my dad and I had to go to a game and travel to New York City uh, to see a Yankees game or even a Phillies game. I mean, you're dropping hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Meanwhile, we have the AAA affiliate for the Yankees, and Scranton looks fair in our backyard. We go and drive 10, 15 minutes. We catch a nice night at the ballpark, you know, some father son bonding, mother, whoever. and you know, it, 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 just a nice night out. And, you know, like I said, I think the negotiations are still a long ways away. Um, I know it's a lot of pointing fingers and most recently it's getting pretty nasty, unfortunately. Um, but you know, I've, I've worked for a team that is on that quote unquote hit list. And, uh, you know, it really, it does hurt to see that because, you know, it's more than just losing baseball people are losing jobs. Um, you know, the, the community are losing income. So, um, like you said, not to get down a rabbit hole, but you know, I certainly, um, you know, definitely agree with your sentiments and, you know, hopefully they are able to figure something out, um, where they don't have to cut all 42 teams.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and we had a question from one of our followers who uh, actually his son plays in the Royal system. Um, and speaking of just kind of like minor league exposure, Corey, my last question for you, and then I'm going to turn you over to Joel, uh, how how long do we have to wait until the Blue Rocks have minor league baseball TV,
2: you know, available at home? <laughs> I know a lot of people are asking. Um you know, the Carolina League only half of the teams, five teams in the entire league have it. Um the, those teams though have newer stadiums than the Blue Rocks. Uh the the ownership here for Wilmington, they have done an absolute splendid job uh renovating the stadium since it was built in a snowstorm back in ninety three. Um that just the infrastructure that would need to change um, for the press box to accommodate um, an MILB TV stream, uh, you know, and, and not trying to um, you know, say that fans aren't aware or they don't understand how it works, but it's a lot more than just setting up a video camera and, and streaming the game. Um, you know, the blue rocks here, especially we take pride in providing the best service for anything, whether that's merchandise marketing, uh, ticket sales, my radio broadcast, we all strive to have the best product out there. And, you know, it, it's a big investment. You have to invest in cameras, cameramen and women, um, you know, the technology to to implement it. So I, I wish I could say soon. Um unfortunately that's, you know, way above my pay grade to make such a decision. But um, you know, I know fans, um, they they were really asking for it this year with all the prospects. Um and we do our best to try and provide um, any type of video footage we can at home. Um, I thought we did a fantastic job this year again with Ryan Griffith, Mike Diodati and and company to, to churn out literally as much video content as humanly possible between three to four people. Um, and you know, hopefully maybe down the road we do, um, like I said, but that, that it's a big investment and that's more so for ownership, uh, to kind of make that decision, um, if, and when that does come.
0: All right, Corey. So, just two two last questions for you, and then we'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for your time today. But obviously, you're around these guys for 140 games. You said you're on the bus, you know, interacting with them, you know, in the clubhouse and things like that. If you got a couple, you know, a story or two, you know, from off the field, on the bus, something like that, with from just your interactions with players, we'd love to hear a couple.
2: Yeah, um, I think I'm trying to think here. I I think as a as a player, I thought Rito Lugo. May have been uh, one of the best stories. Um, obviously signed out of Venezuela pretty late in his career, but um, found out that his mom had passed away from cancer. And uh, he actually left the game for about three years and became a fisherman to, to help provide for his family. And then came back to baseball and the Royals signed him. And if you told me by opening day that Rito Lugo would be the winning pitcher in the decisive Game 5 of the Northern Division Championship Series and the winning pitcher in Game five, five of the mills cup championship series i would have bet you my salary that he wouldn't be um and he was fantastic uh he's a a small lefty doesn't throw gas but he does not throw a pitch on the same side of the plate more than twice and he just kept batters guessing all season long and really um his stats were astounding uh split wise from starter to reliever i I know there's a lot of analytics and stuff like that but to kind of keep it in layman's terms so to speak uh as a starter he was just absolutely lights out. Um, it was night and day difference. He started as a reliever, and as a reliever, he was zero and three with an ERA north of five in seventeen appearances. That was in twenty eight and a third innings. As a starter, he went four and one with a one point two six ERA in fourteen starts and 71 in seventy one and two third innings, and held opponents to a two oh nine average opposed to almost three hundred out of the pen. And he was just an awesome story. Um, he, he was very happy to be. With the team, he's a, he was a quiet guy, but you know he was a competitor. You know you can see on his face he loved taking the ball in big moments, and that's what he did, uh, especially in the postseason. Um, you know Chris Bubich, I think, uh, has turned himself into maybe a top three prospect in this in this organization. I know everybody has different opinions on every player, but what I saw from Bubich, he's just a student of the game. Uh, awesome fastball, great changeup, and he was really working uh with tony medina who was our video coordinator on coordinator on the rap soto um spin rate and all that stuff and he really dove into the analytics and and took it with stride and i mean that's why he had the season he had he led all minor league baseball in strikeouts um for some funny stories uh i know the guys had uh we had hawaiian shirt friday um scott dorman even got me a shirt and said if i didn't wear it i wasn't allowed on the bus so uh kind of set the tone pretty early uh that you know hey if you're traveling with us you're gonna you're gonna be part of this team so to speak and so there i was in in a hawaiian shirt and uh, these guys just loved it we'd roll into stadiums and the visiting players would kind of look at them like what the heck are they wearing i'd be trudging up to a press box in a tie-dye color hawaiian shirt but you know it brought the guys together and you know it was just a way to keep them loose um you know the the time that we got stuck in the rest stop. Uh, you know, a lot of guys probably could have complained. They they could have you know said, "Man, this stinks." You know, the, this the, why are we doing this? But you never really heard anybody complaining. They found ways to to buy time. They played cards. They, they played video games. They talked to their significant others. And a lot of these guys were just really great. Um, you know, Colby Schultz, uh, undrafted free agent. Um, he he's allergic to gluten he's celiac and you know talking to him he had a his own loaf of bread in his locker wherever he went because it obviously had to be gluten free and he said that that in turn actually kind of helped him become a stronger player because he had to eat better and and find different diets um to follow so you know these guys they they come from all walks of life nick prado's a huge country music fan we bonded over luke combs you know he he actually DM me on instagram a couple of weeks ago of a picture of him at a concert venue in California saying, Hey man, like you're going to really enjoy him in a couple weeks. And that's how these guys are. You know, they were, they were really cool to, to just be around, um, Daniel Tillo and Tyler Zuber. I mean, man, they were best friends. They sat right behind me on the bus and you know, they were, they were not afraid to, to, you know, rid me and give me a, a joke or two or, or, you know, get a jab in. And, you know, it was all in good fun. Um, you know, these guys kept loose and it was just a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever have a season like I did here in Wilmington again or wherever my career takes me, but this one definitely will be a memorable one for sure. All
0: right. One last question for you. And those, that, all those stories, that's fantastic stuff. We really, really appreciate your time. Uh, one last question. I wish I, this was my original question, but I stole it from another baseball podcast, but if you could go back and w- see any moment live in person from baseball history, what would it be?
2: Oh, that's a good question. That is a good question. Hmm. Um, I think I just, want to see Mickey Mantle play Um, you know being a Yankee fan growing up I mean it doesn't even have to be a big game just the 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 lore you know that Mickey Mantle had I mean obviously you could say Babe Ruth and he would probably be up there as well but I I was a big fan of the game and part of it is because I think baseball is the only sport that really kind of goes back in time in history you know you, you don't you don't hear about a lot of NFL players you know you hear about the Jim Browns and the Barry Sanders, but I feel like it just doesn't come up in broadcast as much as it does for baseball where, Hey, look at where player X is to, uh, Mickey Mantle or, or Ted Williams or whoever your favorite team is. Um, but for me, yeah, you know, like growing up, my dad remember playing or watching Mickey Mantle play and, uh, you know, just to hear how good he was. And, and it's a shame that Mike Trout is on the West coast. Personally, I, I wish they got Mike Trout on TV twice, three times a week because he is our Generational Mickey Mantle, in my opinion, um but yeah, I would have loved to see uh, Mickey Mantle play. So I've got a
1: pretty funny Mickey Mantle story. So my grandma is not a baseball nerd by any means, but you know she she's a big baseball fan, and she was telling me a story one time about how she was out watching a Kansas City A's game. And, you know, as, as a little kid, they would go out, they'd catch an A's game every now and then. And she said, she was telling me a story about how, you know, the, some of the players on the team, you know, there, there'd be people in the stands taking pictures. They, you know, people would flock out, you know, and, and watch these games and, and watch certain players really come in from out of town. And she was telling me how this, you know, the, the center, or yeah, I think it was the center fielder, the way her story goes. And people were like, there's more people. You know, behind center, and I and I can't even remember how the Kansas City A's stadium was set up or where they played. Um, I obviously was not around then, um, but to the effect of there are more fans in center field than there were anywhere else. And she said she could never figure it out. I said, "Well, you know what? What year do you think you were there?" And she's like, "Oh, she was like this is probably the late 1950s, early 1960s." <laughs> yep. I was like, "Oh yeah, that, that's a, that guy's. His name was Mickey Mantle. He's like maybe the greatest base." player to ever live if you wanted to make that argument she goes
2: oh really i was like oh "Oh, my goodness like yeah oh boy (laughs) yeah i mean there's so many i mean you talk about you know going down a rabbit hole i mean there are so many players that i wish i was able to see and we were able to see and um you know it's just so much fun you know i mean been spoiled as, as a yankee fan to learn and hear about them but i mean you go all across baseball i mean Harmon Killebrew, I you know, and Sam Usual, Ted Williams, obviously, um, you know, I would have loved to see Sandy Koufax pitch. Uh, I have my own podcast, and uh, we had a chance to talk to Dick Strzeuski, who won four World Series and a couple with the Dodgers, and he played behind Koufax. And the stories that he was sharing with us, man, like, like I could talk to him for hours just reliving, you know, his past and, and just the, the way the game was played and the lifestyle it was in the 50s and 60s and I don't know to me it's really cool I've always been kind of a history buff both you know in baseball and you know American history and um yeah you know Mickey Mantle uh, all these guys they were so good and impressive Yogi Berra I mean god he won like 10 World World Series so um you know there's some impressive athletes at every sport but um you know for me I might be
0: biased because I work in baseball I love baseball but but, um
2: there are a ton of players I would have loved to watch play.
0: I, I just love that question because every time I ask it, I come up with a different answer. Like, yeah. I, I probably like 30 or 40 that I can go to just right away that I'm like, yeah, I would go. That's, that's what I want to go see today, but I can't, I can never come up with just one. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what makes baseball so great for,
2: for sure. And we, in our podcast, we, our final question is uh, if you could have a conversation with anyone in the history of civilization, who it would, who would it be? So, you know, kind of along the same lines of, you know, there's there's no wrong answer. You know, I mean, we've had no any answer. We, we've actually had a repeat. Uh, two of our guests uh, said Jesus Christ. So, like, you know, it, it's crazy. You got, uh, you know, we have spiritual, um, you know, figures. We, we've got a wide array of everything with that question. And like you said, I love that, that question, too. I mean, when you said it, I mean, my mind started racing. You know, I had a couple others in mind. But, you know, Mickey Mantle definitely uh, stood out for me at that time. And heck, if you were to ask me tomorrow, I might change my mind.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, Corey, this has been awesome. And yeah, I think you give a lot of insight to the in Blue Rock season. Obviously all of us, you know, we watched it and followed it from afar, but to get someone that had a front row seat to it for 140 games was, was fantastic. And we can't thank you enough. This, I, I'm sure will not be the last time we have you on. Before we let you go, can uh, you give a quick social media plug? Where can everyone follow you on Twitter? Oh uh, yeah, it's uh, at
2: Corey underscore Nido. Uh, first name C-O-R-Y, last name N-I-D-O-H. So pretty simple uh feel free to give me a follow on twitter reach out um you know if you ever tune into a broadcast let me know that you're tuned in love to get feedback and uh you know give you a shout out on the airwaves because uh you know without fans listening in i don't really have a job and it's a a lot of fun to tell the stories of these very talented and young athletes and like i said this year was a lot of fun and you guys do a fantastic job as well um you know as an outsider um you know not really knowing much about the Royals organization when I first came into Wilmington. Um, and then when I found out about you guys, I mean, I, I basically read everything that I could to kind of get caught up to speed. And you guys continue to do fantastic work and uh, looking forward to seeing everything you guys put out for the prospect rankings and, and all that good stuff. So keep up the good work. And uh, to you and your rest of your staff, uh, I know myself and our staff certainly appreciate what you guys do as well.
0: We, we appreciate that a lot. Alex, where can everyone follow you?
2: You can find me on on Twitter at Duvious
1: D-U-V-Y underscore zero one three
0: follow me at JT Penfield be sure to follow the main site at Royals Farm and we'll be back with another interview another podcast coming up soon